This is episode two of our CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore events podcast. This episode continues the 2004 annual enrichment conference titled Together in His Presence Beholding the Wonder of the Trinity with Speaker Bruce Ware. Here is session three, The Wonder of the Sun. What a great Savior and Lord we have. The matchless King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Notice, the right hand of the Father. But from that position reigns over heaven and earth. He is in the process, as we'll see more this evening, of bringing everything into subjection under his own feet. Remember that tomorrow morning or the next day, next time you read a morning newspaper. The king of kings is on his throne. There is nothing spinning out of control. The king of kings sets up kings and puts them down as he wills. You think November 4th will decide who the next president of the United States is. Well, in a sense, we will. But in another sense, we will reflect as a nation the will of the king of kings overall. He is a mighty king. And his main purpose in this life, again, we'll see more of this in a few moments, his main purpose in this era, in this time of history, is to build his church. He reigns over the nations in order to accomplish his purpose of building his church. We put as the headlines in our papers what happens in politics around the nations, in our nation and others. Well, Heaven's newspaper, if there is one, would lead with headlines about the church. And the subtext would be what happened in Iraq, or what happens in Israel, or what happens in America. That's the subtext to the main story. Christ is building his church. We have a great Savior and Lord. And we want to honor him this evening as, as we study who Jesus is in relation to the Father and the Spirit. We realize that on both sides, Father, look at my Son. Spirit, I'm here to glorify Jesus. From both sides, we are to see Jesus as the epitome of what it is to be God and in his humanity, what it is to be man. It's a marvelous thing to behold the glory of Jesus. May God give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to embrace, wills to live out what we see in Jesus. Well, in review, boy, that was a marvelous song, Dean, that uh, your, your friend has written. 
I want this song, my goodness, on the Trinity. That is just remarkable. In review, there is one God, not two, not three, not many, one God, eternally existing and expressed, manifest in three persons. Each is equally God and each is fully God. Not three gods, but three persons. Equal in essence, but different in personal expression of the one undivided divine essence. The Son then is fully God. Not one third God, fully God. But he is not alone the only one possessing the divine nature. The Son and the Father and the Spirit each equally and fully possess the one undivided divine nature. So what distinguishes the Son, in this case our subject this evening, from the Father and the Spirit is not what they share in common. The essence that they both share, all of the attributes of God possessed equally and fully by all three members of the Godhead, all three persons of the Godhead. So what distinguishes the Son then from the Father and the Spirit has to do with the Son's role and relationship in relation to the Father and the Spirit. So our question this evening is what is it that characterizes the distinctiveness of the role and relationship of the Son when you consider Him in relation to the Father and the Spirit? What characterizes the distinctiveness, the uniqueness of the role and relationship of the Son? Well, let's look at this, and I want to look at it in terms of first the Father, the Son's relationship to the Father, and then we'll look at the Son's relationship to the Spirit. And in both of these subjects, uh, there is a wonder to behold, amazing things to see by God's grace. First then, the Son's relationship to the Father. And two main things that I wanna stress here. The first is, follows from what we looked at this morning. The first is that the Son stands under the authority of the Father. The Son stands under the authority, or if you will, the headship of the Father. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. This is an amazing text. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, which by the way is the preface of the passage that deals with the role of women in ministry, the head covering passage, as many of you may remember. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul writes this, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Isn't that amazing? I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So here we have an intentional ordering. The, the word that the early church theologians used of this was taxis. Taxis. You, you read it in Trinitarian discussions all the time. Ordering. There is an ordering in the Godhead. God is the head of Christ. And then in the created order, there is an ordering where Christ is the head of man 
And there is an ordering in human relationships where man is the head of woman. God designed it to reflect his own being, his own internal and eternal relationships. It's one of the reasons, my friends, I'll, I'll say a bit more later about this. It's one of the reasons that the egalitarian movement in our evangelical circles must be so despicable in God's sight. Because what we're saying to God when we say we don't like authority and submission structures, we don't like headship, we don't like the fact that man is head over woman, we are saying to God, we don't like the way you are. For you see, God designed human relationships to be a reflection of himself. Part and parcel of imago Dei, being made in the image of God, is not only that each of us as human beings is created in the image of God. Remember, he said, male and female, you are my image. And what does he set up then in Genesis 2? A relationship in which the woman is created to be the helpmeet for the man. That is, their very relationship as man and woman is reflective also of what it is to be in the image of God. My friends, may we adore God for who he is and not chafe at the way God is but adore him for who he is and then embrace the ways in which God has designed our relationships to reflect the beauty and the wonder and the glory of a God who in three persons is equal in essence but in those three persons is ordered in an authority and submission relationship. Father, Son, Spirit. The Son submits to the Father. Now, what I want you to see from Scripture is, is that this submission to the Father involves, yes, the incarnation of Jesus. That is, when he took on human flesh, while he lived here on this earth, the evidence is overwhelming, absolutely clear, that Jesus lived his life in submission to the Father. He sought to obey the will of the Father. But there's more than this. There is evidence from the New Testament that the submission of Christ to the Father precedes the incarnation and flows out of his earthly mission into eternity future. And so let's take a look at all three of these. First, in history, in the incarnation, in Jesus' own mission here on earth, first, that he submitted to the Father. Turn, if you would, to John 8. Just one sample passage, John 8. We'll see here where Jesus speaks so clearly of his desire to do the will of the Father. Pick up with me, if you would, please. Let's see, at verse... 23, 23, John 8, verse 23. He was saying to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So he establishes his origin. He is 
from the Father, as he puts it in other places. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. Now the he, at least in the New American Standard that I am reading, is added. It's just ego eimi. I am. Unless you believe that I am. The implication is God in human flesh. You will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Good question. And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about his father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Do you marvel at what you just heard about Jesus? Can you imagine waking up in the morning and living one day, just one, doing only the will of another, speaking only what another has taught you to speak? I mean, it is so contrary to the way we think about how life ought to be lived, where we speak what we think. We have our own opinions. We do the things we want to do. Now, now, catch this. This is just remarkable. As you keep reading here, look on in verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom. Jesus has the audacity to speak about freedom a moment after he has said, I do nothing on my own initiative. I only speak the things the Father tells me. And then he says, follow my way, and you're a disciple of mine, and you will be free. So you know what? We have to learn something about freedom, don't we? Freedom is not what our culture tells, it is, tells us it is. Freedom is not my deciding to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. According to the Bible, that's bondage. That's a slavery to self and sin. What is freedom? Well, I, I take it Jesus was the freest human being who ever lived. He's the only fully free human being who has ever lived. And one day we will be set free fully when we always and only do the will of God. What is freedom? Submitting. Submitting to the will of his Father. 
submitting to the words of his father, submitting to do the work of his father. How much of his life was devoted to this? Every day, with every word, every attitude, every action, in everything he did, he submitted to the will of the Father. This is how extensive is his submission. It is comprehensive. He went to the cross sinless. All it would have taken is one time, on one occasion, his deciding, you know what, I'm going to say what I think this time. You know what? I'm going to take a vacation, a self-appointed vacation. I'm going to do what I want to do. Forget the Father for just a moment, just one moment. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, what I want to do. <clears throat> All it would have taken is one time, and we would not have had the sinless Savior to die for our sins. Well, look, look at uh, another passage, or I'll, I'll just read it to you, if you wish, in John 4. Do you remember the episode where Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman? His disciples had gone away to, to get food, and they came back and realized Jesus had not eaten anything yet, and they wondered concerning this, why he wasn't hungry and if he wanted something to eat. And you remember Jesus' response in verse 34, John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food, my sustenance. This is what drives me. This is what I feed on. This is what brings me the greatest joy is to do the will of my Father. You know, you think of this same notion, my food is to do the will of my Father. Think of the temptation of Christ. Forty days without eating anything. This isn't one of these fasts I've heard about where you juice everything, you know. And actually you're eating quite a bit, but it's all in the form of juiced foods. This is a water-only fast, 40 days. And the text says, and when Jesus became hungry, the devil came to him. How hungry do you suppose he was? And one of the temptations was, make these stones bread. And you remember Jesus' response? Man shall, live, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Here's my translation of that. I will not eat until my Father tells me. The fast is over and you may now eat. That's what it means. So here, here is Jesus who lives his life in abject submission. And he is free the freest of all human beings. Boy, so many lessons here. One of them has to do with the lesson of how beautiful authority and submission is to God. May God help us to see authority and submission as beautiful.
God surely does. Now, we could look at many more passages on this point of Jesus' submission to his Father in his earthly ministry. Oh my, it's all over the Gospels. You know, we could cite text after text after text all night. But I want to move ahead because the next point is a very significant one. What about Jesus' submission to the Father prior to the Incarnation? You see, there is a large number, there, there's a large number of evangelicals today who admit that he submitted to the Father during the Incarnation, but they reject the notion that the submission to the Father took place in eternity past before he came or in eternity future after he ascended and, 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 uh, and joined again with the Father. It was only for the purpose of the incarnational mission, so we are told by these evangelicals. Now, footnote here, by the way, why do you suppose they're so desirous of having us believe that the submission of Christ related only to his incarnational mission? It didn't have anything to do with an eternal relationship of the Son to the Father. Even hear those words, Son to the Father. Hmm, where did that language come from anyway in terms of naming the triune persons? Interesting. But nevertheless, okay, Son and Father, fine. But, but it has nothing to do with his eternal relationship of the Son to the Father in eternity past, nor does it in eternity future. Why are they so intent on having us believe this is the case? Because you see, if there is in the Godhead an eternal authority-submission relationship of persons, then doesn't that make it much more likely that when God creates a world, he builds into it what reflects himself? And so we should expect there to be authority, submission, relationships in the world God makes. But, ah, we can be saved from this horrible notion of authority, submission, relationships at the human level if we can absolve God from having any authority, submission, relationship eternally. Do you see the point? Okay, well, what about this question? Did Christ submit to the Father in eternity past? Now, listen, first of all, 1 Corinthians 11.3, I would argue, is a statement of what is an eternal verity. That is, God is the head of Christ, is not suggested by the Apostle Paul in that verse to be an ad hoc relationship for the mission during the Incarnation. It is rather stated as an absolute fact about this relationship. God is the head of Christ. So I would cite 1 Corinthians 11.3 in support of the notion that there is an eternal authority-submission relationship in the Trinity. But besides that, consider this. In the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, just John's Gospel, over 40 times... Jesus mentions the fact that he was sent by the Father to accomplish his mission. And in some of these, it is very clear that the sending took place when? Before he came. In other words, he was sent from heaven to earth 
So when did he obey the Father first and foremost? In eternity past. His very coming to earth was itself in obedience to the Father. Here, for example, the familiar words of John 3.16 and then the less familiar words of John 3.17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not, here it is, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So how is it that the incarnation happened? The Father sent the Son into the world in order to be the Lamb of God sent for the forgiveness of sins. The Son obeyed the Father in eternity past by saying, yes, Father, I will accept your mission you've designed for me to come and bear the sins of your people and be a substitute sacrifice on their behalf. Here's another verse, John 10, 36. John 10, 36, Jesus says, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Did you hear it again there? Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? So how did he get here? Did they flip a coin? I mean, really, when you think about this, if this is not the case, what I'm arguing here, then what, why was it the Son who ends up being the Son? Why the Father as the Father? Why the Spirit as the Spirit? Is this an ad hoc relationship that is a flip of the coin in the Trinity? You know, the three are completely equal. There's no authority submission relationship in the Trinity. All three completely equal. We have an egalitarian Trinity. So how do we get the Father? How do we get the Son? How do we get one cent? Flip of a coin? Does it really matter which one it is? I think that's the, op the, 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 the only alternative to the Bible's own language, that the Father is the eternal Father of the eternal Son, and the Father sends the Son into the world to accomplish the mission the Father has designed. Here's another evidence, another, another one from John chapter 6, verse 38. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Did you hear it? Let me read it again. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here again, Jesus' very coming from heaven is itself an act of obedience and doing the will of his Father. One more verse, not in John's Gospel, and this one is in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, where we're told that Jesus is in fact the one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Let me, let me back up and read from verse, uh, verse uh, 18, 
1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Here it is now, verse 20. For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. Now, foreknowledge. This is a controversial point. I know it, but I'll just tell you what I believe it means, and we can, we can talk about it more another time. Foreknowledge does not mean merely knowing ahead of time what is going to happen. Of course, God has foreknowledge in that sense. It means rather to foreknow is to have a prior disposition to favor, to know in the sense of intimacy of relationship, like Adam knew his wife Eve, intimacy of relationship. To foreknow is to establish an intimate relationship in advance of the relationship, so that when the relationship happens, there is already a determination, already a plan, already a commitment to show favor and relationship to this one. So verse 20, he was foreknown. God had established with his son a prior disposition to favor his son. When? When did this prior disposition to favor Jesus, to exalt Jesus, to, to, to make his son the one who would bring everything into subjection, that his son would be raised above all of creation, that his son would have the name that is above every name, that every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When did he make this prior disposition to favor his son before the foundation of the world. Don't you see how this requires an authority, submission, relationship in eternity past that is then expressed in creation? So what we see in the incarnational mission of Christ with Jesus saying things like, I don't speak on my own initiative. Whatever the Father tells me, that's what I speak. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. When we see Jesus saying things like that, it is a reflection in his incarnational mission of the eternal relationship that has always been true and will always be true with his Father. What about eternity future? What about eternity future? Do we have reason to think that the Son, having accomplished the mission is still in submission to his father? Look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at, at verses 25 to 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 28. We've referenced these verses before, but we haven't looked at them carefully. Paul writes, for he must reign, that is, Christ must reign, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, you might think that, you know, goodness, this is the passage about Christ having been raised from the dead. Hasn't he already abolished death? Well, the answer is, 
in, in, in the way a lot of theological questions are, the answer is yes and no. Yes, he has abolished death by his own resurrection, but his own resurrection is the first fruits, right? It is the first fruits of those who will be raised. So Christ has yet to abolish all of death. Goodness, we know that, don't we? We, we know we still die. And so death has not been abolished in the final sense yet, but it will be, says this verse. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, the pronouns are confusing. Let me give you nouns instead of pronouns. For the Father has put all things in subjection under the Son's feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Let me give you nouns again. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection to his Son. If the Father is the one who gave to the Son all things to be in subjection under his feet, then the Father himself is not one of those things subject to the Son. He is the one thing that is not subject to the Son, the Father. Now verse 28, when all things, except the Father obviously, when all things are subjected to the Son, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. And who was that? The Father, the Father. He will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God, the Father, may be all in all. Isn't it clear that Scripture teaches that in fact, Jesus' submission to the Father stems from eternity past to eternity future. And what we see in the incarnational mission of Christ over and over again is simply the manifestation here and now of what is eternally true in the relationship between the Father and the Son. Okay, we've seen that the relationship of the Father and the, to the Son, or I should say to the Son to the Father, is one of submission. Submission to His authority. And it is an eternal submission. Eternity past, in His incarnational mission, and in eternity future. Now one more point about the Son in relation to the Father. Why? What is the purpose? Why is the Son subject to the Father? Well, in, in one sense, this is a mystery. That is, we don't know why, in an ultimate sense, the Trinity is this way. We accept the fact that it is this way by divine revelation. We don't know why the eternal relationship in the Godhead isn't instead egalitarian, as egalitarians would like it to be. Sorry, they're wrong. So in one sense, it is a mystery. In the classic sense, you know, there are always ceilings above theologians' heads. Do you know that? You know, ceilings that indicate we can go so high and no further. 
So why there is this eternal relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this taxis, this ordering uh, in the Trinity, ultimately all we can say is this is what God reveals to us concerning himself. We accept it as true. Okay, having said that then, Here's the second thing I want to say. Why? What is the purpose? It must reflect something of the wisdom and the beauty of who God is. Just as we could say the same thing about holiness. Why, why is it that God is holy? Well, in one sense, all we can say is, that's God. That's God. He just is. I mean, that's, that's the definition of his nature. He is holy. But can't we then say, after we have said, we just accept by revelation that he is holy, can't we then say, there is something wise and beautiful about his holiness? His goodness, his love, his wisdom. Isn't that true with all the things we would look at in God that are eternal verities? They are eternally true about God. They cannot be other than this. They cannot be different from this. They are eternally fixed like this. And yet, having said that, can't we say of all of them, they're beautiful, they are wise, they are good, because God is beautiful and wise and good. So can't we then say of authority and submission in the Godhead, it is beautiful and wise and good. And can't we say one more thing, extend it one more step, and unpack a bit of what is beautiful and wise and good about it. Namely, there is something exquisite about three persons who have equality of essence, who share in relationship to one another, though they are equals in their nature. They share in relationship to one another, one bowing to another, one commanding another, and this is done in harmony. This is done without any begrudging. This is done without any complaint. This is done on the side of the authority, as we saw this morning with the Father. This is done without any pride. This is done without any self-serving. Rather, it is, look at my son. Look at my son. So, isn't it, isn't it clear that as we look at this, we can see something of what constitutes the beauty, the wisdom, the goodness of this structure in the Godhead. And in particular, one thing that is extraordinarily beautiful is that the main mission of the Son is to be the one through whom all things are reconciled to the Father. All things are brought back into their place of recognizing God is God. Remember Colossians 1? Let me just remind you quickly of this passage. Colossians 1, where 
Paul begins as he does in Ephesians, giving praise to the Father. That's in verse 12. I mentioned that to you this morning. Giving thanks to the Father who is qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. For he, the Father, rescued us verse 13, from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the father is the one who redeemed us in his son. But now you come down a bit and you come down to verse 19 and 20 and listen to these words. For it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in his son and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Isn't it glorious that the Father has designed this way through his Son to accomplish all of his work, every bit of it, that the Father may accomplish his work but through another. And of course, as we flesh this out a bit more, we realize this requires the power of the Spirit as well. So what's the purpose of the Son's submission? In an ultimate sense, we cannot say. It is the nature of God. But then we look and we say, yes, but, though it is the eternal nature of God, it is beautiful. And then we can explore a bit what constitutes the beauty, the wonder, the wisdom, the goodness of this relationship of the Son eternally submissive to the Father. Okay, let's shift gears now and look next at the Son's relationship to the Spirit. The Son's relationship to the Spirit. <clears throat> and here we have a very, very interesting set of data in the New Testament to look at. <clears throat> Amazingly, when we look at the New Testament on the question how does the Son relate to the Spirit? We see two themes that appear to be in conflict with one another. Two themes that don't easily join together. Jesus, on the one hand, submits to the Spirit in order to accomplish His work. But on the other hand, Jesus has authority over the Spirit. And so the Spirit comes to glorify me, says Jesus. So which is it? Which is it? Is it Jesus, does Jesus submit to the Spirit? Or is Jesus authority over the Spirit? Which is it? And the answer is, it is both. It is exactly as we see it in the New Testament. It is both, but obviously in different senses. Now see if this makes sense to you. Jesus, who dwelt among us, was the God-man. He was the son of David, right? Remember the genealogies in Matthew and Luke? Why did they labor to give to us genealogies of Jesus? Does it matter? Yes. Remember 2 Samuel 7? God promised to David he would have a son on his throne forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise ultimately. Not Solomon, not any other succeeding son until finally we come to Jesus who is in the line of David. 
He is also the seed of Abraham. He, he is also the second Adam. He is a man. And as a man, he must live his life as one of us. There is so much to this that I wish we would have time to go into, but let me just, actually we did a bit of this last year as I recall, some of it, those of you who were here. He lived his life as a man. So for example, 1 Peter 2, 21 is true. Follow in his steps, Peter tells us. Who committed no sin? Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When being reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Follow in his steps. Who committed no sin? Now, I remember as a young boy reading that passage, thinking to myself, not fair. Not fair. Why? He's God. I mean, I had learned my evangelical theology and my upbringing really well. I had learned the importance of the deity of Christ. He's God. Well, if he's God and I'm not, <laughs> and I'm not, how is it fair for Peter to say, follow in his steps who committed no sin? Well, here's the answer to that question I had as a boy. The answer is, he didn't not sin because he's God. He didn't sin. Did I say that right? Yes, I think I did. He didn't sin, on the other hand, because as a man, he submitted to the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Live by the Spirit, and you will fulfill the law, says Paul in Romans 8, verse 4. Jesus was the paradigmatic. You know that word? The paradigm. He, he was the prototype of the Spirit-filled person. He lived his life as a man in the power of the Spirit. So when he resisted temptation, he did not employ, as it were, his divine power to resist. How did he resist? As a man who with the Spirit and the Word and prayer and a relationship with his Father resists temptation. And so we are told, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2. So we are told, follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2. So as a man, he humbled himself, took on human form, and in that human form, lived by the power of the Spirit. So much so, goodness, there's much here, but so much so that Peter, in his sermon to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, turn there with me, Acts chapter 10 tries to summarize briefly the meaning of the life, ministry, miracles of Jesus. And here is how he says it. Here is how he says it. Acts 10 verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, Peter says to Cornelius, how God, now look at the language, how God anointed him with 
the Holy Spirit and with power? And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him? Notice Peter does not say, you know about Jesus of Nazareth, how he was God in human flesh. Of course, he was that. But that's not what Peter emphasizes here. How he was God in human flesh and how he went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed because by his divine power he did this? No. Notice even the language in verse 38. Isn't it unmistakably the same language of Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Acts 10, 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Do you suppose there's any intended connection by, by Luke, the writer of this, between Acts 1, 8 and Acts 10, 38? I think so. I think so. What we, what we see in Jesus is the Spirit-empowered person. The Holy Spirit comes upon him in power, and, and look, at, look at what he does. Uh, uh, how he went about doing good, healing all who are oppressed. In other words, this sweeping summary of his life and ministry and miracles. How did he do it? For God was with him. Now, marvel with me at this. Jesus lived his human life in submission to the Spirit. Who is this Jesus? He is the eternal Son of the Father who in rank, if you will, within the Trinity has authority over the Spirit. But what does he do for the sake of the mission? Humble himself. Yes, taking on our human flesh, Philippians 2, and submitting to the very one over whom he has rightful authority. Amazing. Now, that's one thing that we learn about, this, about Jesus' relation to the Spirit, and it explains so many things. Just real briefly, it explains, for example... How, how it is we read in Luke 2, verses 40 and 52, that Jesus grew in wisdom. Have you ever wondered about this? I mean, he's, he's eternally God. He can't grow in wisdom in his divine nature. So what must this mean? That in the consciousness of the God-man, he accepted the limitations of what it is to be a human to grow in understanding, to grow in wisdom, so that the Spirit in him would help him see things more clearly, understand the law with greater clarity and, and greater forcefulness, so that Jesus grew in wisdom over the years as any boy would grow, any child born. He was just like other babies in that sense. We should not think of Jesus laying in the manger in Bethlehem, looking up at the stars of the heavens and contemplating the physics of the universe he created. We should not do this. Why? 
because that baby in a manger had accepted the confines of human limitation in order to live life as one of us. Now he, boy, we have got to be careful. There is the canotic heresy that we could fall into here. This is the view that in accepting the limitations of our humanity, he discarded attributes of his deity. This is horrible. This is a denial then of the full deity of Christ. He did not do that. What did he do? He willingly accepted the restriction of the use of his divine attributes that he could experience and live life as a human being. He possessed all of them, but accepted the restriction of their use. Do you see the difference between restriction of use and discarding? Two very, very different things. Which also helps explain one other passage that puzzles many people. It was a passage Arius used in defense of his notion that Jesus wasn't God. Mark 13, 32, where Jesus says concerning this, the hour of the second coming, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son of God. Mark 13, 32. How do we understand that? Well, Arius thought it's pretty clear that indicates he's not God. The problem is so much, so much evidence stands against Arius on this point. He was God. So how do we explain, though, when he says he doesn't know the hour of the second coming? Answer, he accepted the limitations of his human existence, including limited knowledge. In his divine nature, he retained omniscience, but in the consciousness of Jesus, the God-man, he accepted limitations. So he would have to trust his father. He didn't know the outcome in advance, except as it was revealed to him. He had to, he had to live by faith. He, ha he had to grow. He had to study. He had to, as Hebrews puts it, he had to grow in his perfection. He became perfect through the things he suffered. He learned obedience. Boy, th those passages in Hebrews are awfully puzzling if you don't think this way. So he learned obedience. That is, Jesus learned little by little to obey harder and harder and harder demands of his Father until he was now ready for the ultimate demand which even at that point was obviously excruciatingly difficult. How else do you explain three times in the garden him crying out to the Father, sweating as it were drops of blood, Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. He was prepared to accept the biggest challenge by tests of faith along the way. He learned obedience, not by being disobedient and moving from disobedience to obedience, but rather by being obedient 
in yet more difficult tasks, demands, challenges, until the ultimate one came. He was a man, submitted to the Spirit, lived his life in relation to the Spirit. The second way Jesus relates to the Spirit is as the triumphant. Yes, triumphant Messiah, the Son of, the, the son of Man who won the victory over death, but also as God who has rights over the Spirit, He has authority over the Spirit. Turn with me quickly. I know we're just about out of time, so turn with me quickly to John 14. John 14, and just trace with me a few of these statements by Jesus. First of all, John 14, verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom, now notice the language, boy, it's very interesting. Go back later and look at these verses more carefully. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, isn't that fascinating, that language? Whom the Father will send. So obviously the Father has primacy in this, top priority in this, but he sends the Spirit not unilaterally, he sends the Spirit in the name of Jesus to accomplish the work of Jesus as the servant of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, so the, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance that which I said to you. So the Spirit in his coming will come in my name. He will speak my word. He will do what I say. Look at the next passage. John 15, 26. John 15, 26. When he the help, <clears throat> excuse me, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. Now, isn't that fascinating? That way of putting it. Whom I will send to you from the Father. So obviously the only way this can happen is first of all, Jesus receives the Spirit from the Father. And then he, Jesus, gives the Spirit to the church. Whom I will send to you from the Father. That is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. That indicates, of course, the primacy of the Father in this. He will testify about me. <clears throat> and then John 16, this is the, the most explicit statement in John when he's talking about this. John 16, verses 12 through 14. 12 through 15, I'm sorry. John 16, verses 12 through 15. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said he takes of mine and discloses it to you. In that one verse, verse 15, don't you see this taxis, this ordering in the Trinity? I receive from the Father, I give it to the Spirit. And, uh, and in verse 14, this astonishing statement, he will glorify me. 
The mark of a spirit-filled church is not the presence or manifestation of the spirit per se. It is the spirits elevating, extolling, sponsoring, inspiring, moving the glorification of Jesus. That's what a spirit-filled life looks like. Remember 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is accursed by the Spirit. I'm, uh, no one can say Jesus is accursed by the Spirit, but only by the Spirit can one say Jesus is Lord. So look at what the Spirit wants to say through us. Not, the Spirit is Lord, the Spirit is cool, the Spirit is on top. Jesus is Lord. All right. Application. Four points briefly as we bring this to a close. First, marvel as we have seen already and now see again here. Marvel at the submission of the Son to the Father. And realize, are you ready for this? Realize that it is just as much God-like to submit to rightful authority as it is God-like to exercise legitimate rightful authority. Take that to heart. It is just as God-like this is in the Trinity, folks. This is the eternal relationship of the divine Son to the divine Father. It is as God-like to submit in joy, in gladness, with longing to carry out the will of another, to find one's joy in doing the will of another. It is as godlike to submit to rightful authority as it is godlike to exercise rightful, legitimate authority. Second, marvel at the submission of the incarnate Son to the Spirit, over whom He, in His eternal existence as God, had rights of authority over. Marvel at the willingness, the humility, the condescension of the Son to submit to the leadership, the directives of the Spirit. I, I failed to mention this verse to you, but you remember in Luke 4, verse 1, this is the passage that begins the temptation of Jesus. Do you remember how it reads? Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. So Jesus went where the Spirit told him to go. Marvel at the submission of the Son to the Spirit, the one over whom in his eternal existence as the Son of the Father he had rightful authority over. What amazing humility.
What amazing condescension. Third, marvel at the clarity and the forthrightness of the authority of the Son when he says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me. Marvel at the clarity and the forthrightness of the authority of the Son when he says, He will glorify me. Now, what's marvelous about this? It's not arrogant. It is not prideful. It is right. It is right. And so it is not necessarily arrogant, prideful for those in authority to pronounce their authority. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? How often he had to defend his apostleship. Was it, was, was it a lack of humility for him to do this? No. He knew everything was at stake if people didn't acknowledge his apostleship. If they followed instead the false teachers who were claiming that Paul's teaching was wrong, their teaching was right. So what is Paul to do in the midst of that situation but to assert not with pride, but with correctness. I'm the apostle. I have authority, not these false teachers. Here is Christ who acknowledges and declares his absolute authority over the Spirit, not in arrogance, but in truthfulness. Fourth and last, marvel at the unity and harmony within the triune relationships worked out in an authority submission structure. The unity and harmony worked out in an authority submission relationship. Marvel at a relationship in which those in authority and those in submission are on the same page. Going by the same playbook. Fulfilling the same goal. Supporting one another in the common mission. But all the while acknowledging the Father is the Father. The Son is the Son. The Spirit is the Spirit. In this mutual work and ask yourself the question does this relate to marriage does this relate to elders and their people in their church does this relate to you and your you, those of you who are employed in the workplace does this relate to you and your boss an employee employer relationship does this relate to us and government marvel at an authority submission relationship worked out in unity and harmony. And imagine, imagine what that would look like in our relationships with one another in the various ways in which God has placed us in taxes, ordered in relationship to one another. Marvel at Jesus, the eternal Son of the eternal Father, accepting the Father's commandment to send His Son into this world 
to take on human flesh, live a perfect life in the power of the Spirit, give his life for sinners, and then accept the reward. Remember, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Accept the reward to sit at the right hand and have all authority, all power, all dominion, the name that is above every name given to him. Marvel at Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this evening for the great joy of being together to celebrate just a bit of the wonder and the glory of your son, Jesus. We do this in honor to you, the triune God. And, and in particular, we honor the son, the spirit who is here in our midst, moves in our hearts to say, yes, we honor you, Lord Jesus. You are great and worthy of our praise. Help us to be before you a people who lives worthy of your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.